fam welcome back to the renowned leadership podcast i'm your host Stephen morris as always it is so amazing to have you all here and you know what i i've brought you all some pretty cool people in the past some some very wealthy people some people that have started businesses and made millions by the time they were 20 um some new york times bestsellers but never before have i got to interview someone that's won nine emmys like (laughs) this is just the pinnacle so far of this podcast. And I'm so excited. Today, we're talking to Jane Hansen. And I'm not even going to try to go through your bio, Jane, because it is like, <laughs> I don't want to butcher it. So I'm going to let you do introduce, do your own introduction here and just introduce yourself and tell people what you got going on today. Okay. So thank you for having me. And I'm looking forward to talking to your audience. There are people that are right up my alley about you know, in the tech world. And, and although sometimes I wonder about my technical abilities and um, <laughs> entrepreneurs and people who just want to improve their leadership skills, because that's a lot of what I do these days as I work with people um, about executive presence and things like that. But by way of my background, um, yes, I have won nine Emmys and uh, I've worked for NBC, mostly in New York for most of my career as a broadcaster, a newscaster, um, I had shows of my own. Um, I've traveled the world thanks to my bosses and had um, I've seen history being made before my very eyes. And it was one of the most wonderful careers anybody could ever have. And now I'm in the business of coaching and taking all those things I learned from interviewing hundreds of thousands of people, from being uh, speaking in front of them, from moderating panels, from emceeing events, from all the work that I've done in that whole space of communications. And I've taken that and I've turned it into a reinvention of myself and an entrepreneur. And that's what I do. Uh, that's what an amazing career you've had. And I was just, as you were talking, I was rereading your bio again. It's like, man, like I've traveled the world a few times. I've done some cool stuff. I've seen some stuff. But man, I can't imagine just what the journey of journalism has done for you. It's just so incredible. So talk to me a little bit. So you were raised in rural Minnesota. Uh-huh. So I, I think that's so uh, movie-esque, if you will, the, a small town girl with big dreams, dreams of going to New York, like becoming this famous journalist. And you did it. Like, what was that journey like? Well, the town that I grew up in uh, is called Canby, and it's on the southwestern edge of Minnesota. And if anybody remembers the program, Little House on the Prairie, mm-hmm. my little town is 40 miles from where that was located, Walnut Grove, Minnesota. And so that's the vision. Just think of it. That's the vision. You, if you get on a hill high enough, you can see for a thousand miles. We had no stoplight in our town. That's how little it is. And most of the town was related to me and still is. So... Growing up, it was very idyllic in that sense, but it was also very um, confining in that to see the world, we had to take long trips. And so that was what I wanted as a little girl growing up. And my dad was incredibly supportive. And so he would read me stories from the newspapers and then we'd talk about it and what was happening in the world. And I said, I want to see the world and I want to see the world through the lens of being a journalist, because what is a journalist? It's somebody who's really curious and is seeking the truth. And that's how I came at it. 
And I was lucky enough to, I mean, my first television job was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota for, it was a very brief little stint. My second one was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, another brief time. And then I got a call and they invited me to come to New York to audition and um, they'd seen some tapes and I got hired. So I was super, super young when I went to New York. My dad was scared to death because he's like, that's the big bad city. How are you going to survive? <laughs> so, And I'm like, are you kidding? I can't wait for the adventure and what's going to be there. So it was really unbelievably cool to do the things that I did and to do them so quickly. Um, when you're in New York, which really is obviously the largest city in the country and it's kind of the center of the universe when you think of cities and what happens in them and you never do knew in any given day or time what was going what you were going to cover or what you were going to talk about or what was going to happen and so it, it was pretty it was pretty cool it was very very cool but I have to say there are a lot of journalists that come from the Midwest and it used to be because we had a very non-telling accent. Like you couldn't really tell mm -hmm. where we were from. Now they embrace the accent that is reminiscent of what part of the country you're from. Um, and so, I mean, when I first arrived, uh, when I first arrived, the, the man who'd hired me, who was a terrific, terrific news director, I walk in the door and he hands me some business cards and I go, what are these? And he said, well, one is for a stylist because we got to get you out of those Midwestern clothes. The second one was for a hairstylist and who said, you know, we got to do something with the hair. And then the third was for a voice coach. And I go, voice coach, why do I need a voice coach? He goes, those dropped INGs and that flat A are driving me crazy. So I thought you really liked me. <laughs> And he goes, I do, I do. I wouldn't have hired you if I didn't really like you, but we're just, you know, polishing up a few things. So it was pretty funny. That, that is such an incredible story slash journey. How how scared were you getting to New York? Because New York is intimidating if you've never been there. It's intimidating. Um, I think I was so young because I was in my early 20s that and when you're that age, you kind of think, you know, you're immortal and that you know everything. So yeah. I wasn't really intimidated ahead of time. But then when I walked in the door and I saw all these veteran newscasters and broadcasters that I, you know, seen on television and obviously had unbelievable uh, respect for, that's when I got a little anxious. And I thought, how is it that I can possibly be covering the same stories and be on the same shows as them? How do I deal with that? And so the one thing that I did, I was smart enough then to do this, even though I don't think, I didn't know that I was that smart. <laughs> it was just kind of <laughs> something that I did intuitively. So I would go to them, um, like there was this very, this, this, this reporter named Gabe Pressman. I'm sure you probably remember the name. Mm -hmm. And he'd been, you know, by the time I was at NBC, he was already maybe in his fifties or sixties, um, He's since passed on, but really, really well respected. And he'd been covering, you know, he'd covered every story one could possibly imagine. And so I would go to somebody like him and I'd say, I know I'm covering this, this event today or this story today. Can you give me some background? Can you give me some guidance about the issues that I may not know about because I haven't been around that long, but you know them. And so, and, and, and those people, 
you know, God bless them. Like Chuck Scarborough, who's been the anchor in, in at WNBC TV in New York forever. Those people I would go to and say, give me some advice, please. And, and I found that they were actually quite thrilled to be um, asked. They were very generous, very generous with their advice and, and, and their knowledge and what they would share with me. And so I think that that was truly useful. I think it's one of the smartest things I did, even though I didn't realize it at the time. So I just, I, I think that that's one bit of advice that I could give to people who are listening is ask for help. Don't be afraid to. What's the worst somebody could say? No, but most likely they're going to say, sure. And just, you know, just even a few little tidbits will set you on your way to success. Wow, I love that. And you like jumped way ahead of, <laughs> of, of my schedule here, but that's fine. We're going to roll with it because that is something that is so important to me. And I talk, uh, I talk all the time about mentorship and how important it is to find mentors and coaches. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, for some reason, I don't, you know, thank God you didn't have it ingrained in your brain, but I think a lot of us have ingrained in our brain not to ask for help right? Because why is that person going to want to help us or that person's too important to help us or they don't have the time or they just don't want to. But, uh, you know, my experience is the exact same as yours. Once I get over that fear and just approach people and like, hey, will you help me with this? And, and that's been with my podcast, with my company, you know, going through the military the whole time I was in that. Like anytime I've approached Actually, honestly, I don't remember a single time I've asked someone for advice and help that they've told me no. Yeah, like I agree, I agree. But at the core of it is the respect that mm -hmm. you're showing respect for them. That you are, I mean, at the core of all of my coaching today is any conversation, for example, because I help people with really tough conversations. Any conversation, if you come at it from a respectful place and you put yourself in the other person's shoes, the conversation will be okay. Mm -hmm. But respect, I mean, you you must have learned that in the military about this oh, yeah. respect. You just got to respect people no matter where they're coming from. And, and I think that that's what you demonstrate when you... Um, when you're asking for help, but you're doing it in a way that's like, you know about this and I don't. And mm -hmm. if I could get just the teensiest bit of information from you or help, I would be forever grateful. So it's that respect thing that that really seals the deal, I think. Yeah, I agree 100%. And so now that you are on the other end of, you know, the this incredible life of travel and journalism work that you've done do you do you have people that will come up to you every once in a while and be like jane jane like i'm doing this i need help has that happened at all all the time yeah. absolutely and i love what i really love doing is connecting people because mm -hmm. i get you know my brain works my brain is always like connecting things and going well wait this makes sense to connect with this so i'm going to put these people together and maybe something good will come from it um not for any other agenda purposes other than to say wow this would be really cool but it's the thing you do also when you're a journalist you're always connecting ideas and thoughts to make them come into a story because right. 
Sometimes there's so many different truths or so many different sides to something. And you have to figure out what is the connecting factor in there and how does that make sense? And then, so I think it's kind of innate to people who are journalists to, to find those connected roads or thoughts or something. Um, the other the other thing when you're going down this same line about asking for help is also beginning conversations. Um, those small talk conversations that we all sometimes think, oh, ugh, I don't want to do that. That sounds boring. What am I going to say? How am I going to start it? I always try to find something really unusual or break the script. I used to get great stories by, I'd be riding in an elevator and, and, um, and I remember one time I'm in an elevator with, with some guy who had this really cool tie on. And I said, wow, I love your tie. And it had to do with the music business. And he goes, oh yeah, he, um, he got it. I think he got it from like Paul McCartney or something. And, and I said, wow, why? And he goes, oh, because I did this management thing. And he told me this whole story. And I thought, oh my God, this guy, this is a news story. And so it turned into a news story because I asked a guy about his tie. So it was just, it's like just weird things. So think no, about having conversations. I love that. And it's funny because people are like, how do you find your clients when talking to me? And it's like, I just talk to people like, cause you never know who your next client will be like the person behind you in line at Starbucks or the, the late, the lady that's too short to reach the top shelf in the grocery store. And I walk up and offer my assistance and to get things off the top shelf for like, you know, I I've gotten clients literally about that way, just striking up conversations. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think we put too much emphasis on needing to make that. I agree. The first impression is important, Yeah. but I believe at least in my case, if I'm coming from a genuine, honest place of, Hey, would you like help getting that off the top shelf? Like that comes off as genuine, honest and makes a good first impression. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I feel, but if you flip the script and I'm focusing on this situation, trying to think how I'm going to make a good first impression and it's scripted and it's not genuine and honest, then that's what makes the bad impression. We've put too much pressure on ourselves. Just be you, just be normal. And like you said, like, dude, that's a cool tie, man. Like, I'm sure you didn't call him dude, but you know, that's how, that's how I would have started that conversation. Right. Well, you know, and, we all have our own ways. Right. So, I mean, but that would have come like, I love that advice. That is so key. So crucial. Just go connect with people and, and just talk and, and you will never believe where it will take you. I love that. So I, I want to kind of ask you, I don't know if this is an uncomfortable question and if it is, and you don't want to answer, just tell me to shut up and we'll move on. But so you got on to today in New York mm -hmm. in 1988. Mm-hmm. I know we've come as a society a long way as far as, um, you know, women in prominent positions and things like that. Um, and I know for a long time, the news was a very male dominated industry. Did you have to face a lot of sexism or things like that as you came up through the, the ranks? And if so, how did you deal with it? Absolutely. And I don't think there's a single woman in broadcasting, at least in the time that I was in it. And I talk with this about a lot of, I still have a lot of, of friends that are still in the business or uh, out of the business, but we all still talk. 
And there's not a single one of them that hasn't had some kind of an incident that's happened to them. And it would have been, and we all learn, and when I say incident, I mean some kind of sexual harassment or something like that. And we all had the same point of view, which was, it was going to be our word against his word. And therefore, if we were to do something about it, we probably would lose and it might taint our career. And we all just, I mean, we all kind of not, not universally together made a decision, but every single woman kind of did this in their own head. They said, I'm not going to take the chance that it's going to cost me my career. And I'm just going to move on and deal with it the best way I know how, because I know it's happened to me. Um, the other thing is a little example. I really wanted to do sports and, you know, some sports casting because I grew up in a family that was very sports oriented. My brothers were really good athletes. My dad was a sports junkie. Um, I probably knew more about, you know, some of the stats and that kind of thing than most men. But uh, I just, I could never get them to let me do a sports cast. And so I finally said, all right, how about if I do this? Let me do like the color stuff. And so one of the first things that I showed these attributes at was one of the Yankees victories parade. And so we're, you know, downtown in the Canyon of Heroes and I'm broadcasting along with um, two male cohorts, one sportscaster and one a male anchorman. And what I remember I, this, by the way, just so, you know. <laughs> yes, I do. so what I did was I researched the hell out of, of, of every single player and found out what do they do in their off time, about their families, about all kinds of like wacky little interesting facts that really brought a new spice to to the to the broadcast. And I kept and I just kept adding this stuff. You know, somebody would be going, yes, and this year they're you know the R RBI was blah 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 blah. And I'd say, but you know what they're going to do next week? They collect. Ford Mustangs and they have 16 of them in their barn in Arkansas. And, and I'm just, I'm making that part up, but I'm just thinking about this right. is the kind of stuff I said. And, um, and I would just, I'd go, I would tell these stories and it's all about stories. Anyway, I'd tell these stories about their players or about their families or, or, you know, their background, whatever I could find. And at the end of the show, I remember both of the guys looked at me and they said, where did you get all of that? And I said, I worked hard because I'm here to prove myself. And ever since that broadcast, they let me do every single kind of sports broadcast you can imagine. Now, I wasn't um, necessarily on the field, although I did do one show when I had my own program called Jane's New York. It was a day in the life of a stadium. And that's when um, Eli Manning was still playing for the Giants. And we did this and it was um, it was a game. Um, we ran out, I ran out on the field with the team, which is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> and then interviewed him right there as he's, you know, they're, they're getting ready. Right. So it's pretty fun. But, um, but I was always at the scene and whenever we do the live broadcasts of whatever it was, and then I would do, you know, the same, same thing about talking about, impressions about the conversations I, I got to the point where I interviewed a lot of the players I'd go into the locker rooms um at times which sometimes for a girl wasn't necessarily the prettiest sight but um <laughs> I can only imagine yeah um but it was a it was a it was me having to prove myself and 
you know, now there are lots of female sportscasters, lots of female broadcasters, but still not as many as men. Um, you know, watch the the football games. You don't really see women broadcasting, you know, calling the game or broadcasting the game or doing all the, you know, the, the commentary before or afterwards. You see them on the field doing things, but you don't see a lot of them kind of in the booth, so to speak. Um, so it, so I would say that, yes, there was sexism. Um, I think there still is a bit. I think it's a lot better than it was. Um, it took years before I actually had a female boss. And I remember the first time I ever walked into the bathroom and she was in there and I go, that's how guys always did this. <laughs> they would be. So anyway. That, that's that's awesome. And, and you're absolutely right. And, and I think it's pretty cool. Like you, you were a part of that pioneering cast that, and obviously I don't know the others. I'm sure there, there are several other uh, women out there that, that really pioneered getting into the sports scene. Um, but no, that's, that's pretty awesome. And I actually didn't know that, uh, that part of your story. That's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. Um, what advice? So like you said, unfortunately, sexism still exists today. Um, so you, you got young ladies, young women, um, listening to you right now. What, what, what's your, one piece of advice for them to power through the sexism to, to achieve the greatness that they're seeking. I would highly suggest that they find support groups or teams of other women, because when I first started in television, I was the only woman in the newsroom in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and I did everything. And they felt like one woman was enough. They didn't need any more. Now I argue that that may be true in many cases, but I'm being a little facetious here. <laughs> um, but the, um, the I did everything. I produced my shows. I anchored the um, you know, morning news and the noon newscast and the weekend news. And I, um, I, you know, I shot my own stuff. I edited it. I did everything one could possibly do, but it was all learning and it was all good. So that doesn't exist anymore that there's only one woman in a newsroom. It doesn't exist anymore that there's, that somebody's going to have to prove themselves in that way. Uh, there are many women who have, and, I, and I'm, I'm part of a number of different organizations that are all groups of women. Women now build each other up. They didn't need, they, they were in competition for a long time. That isn't true. I mean, women might still be in competition, but women really help support women. I would find other uh, women that might be in your same field or maybe have the same kind of interests, bond with them, have coffee with them, have discuss how you're feeling because it's a safe space. And to have that same space, safe space where you can really talk about issues that you're confronting or are thinking about how should I deal with this? It can be really, really helpful. And so I think it's a, it, it, I think one great idea is to find some organizations where you will become a part of a team and you know, you've got people have got your back. Yeah, totally agree. 100%. Uh, and even, even for, it doesn't matter what your sex is or what you identify as or what business you're in seriously we all need that 
I, I think I don't think that's just woman advice. I think that's that's everybody advice because when I started my podcast, when I started my company, when I was coming up through the ranks in the military, like I had to have a core group of people that understood me and understood what I was going through and could help me. Because I mean, how many times, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, where you were just so pissed off, you couldn't see straight at something. Right. Right. And you need someone to talk you off that ledge because you were just about to quit and throw it all away. Right. Or, you know, you were heartbroken about something and you needed someone to pull you, you know, and, and I actually wanted to talk to the, talk about this a little bit is the the most significant time I remember watching you on the news was during 9-11 when I was in basic training. And you had already talked about you never know. I'm sure when you woke up that morning, you did not plan on covering that. No. Right? So, I mean, no. obviously you didn't. But, you know, I'm sure you needed someone as you were watching the, this tragedy unfold. And you had to be composed, right? Because you were like, you're giving the country its news. And at that point, you're giving the world it's news. And so you, you can't be a, a crying mess. Like you have to be composed. You have to be controlled, but at the same time, you're still a woman, you're still human. You're still all these things and you need someone to pull you back and, and help you get that restraint. Having those people in your life, paramount key. So my question is what, what was that like for you? Uh, on that on on September 11th like just just brief like I just I, I've never spoke to somebody that was that was in your position so I'm just curious so that morning I was sitting in the studio and I was waiting to do um, a little mini newscast and someone and, and honestly the truth was it was fashion week in New York and I wanted to sneak out the door to go to a fashion show as soon as nine o'clock rolled around so I was sitting in the studio and I had my earpiece in because we always had an earpiece and I had a microphone on because I was just waiting. And um, a producer says to me in, the, in my ear, look at the monitor because we had cameras on the Empire State Building and on the World Trade Center. And in fact, we lost an engineer that was up on the very top um, that day. But anyway, look in the look in the monitor and you'll see that we believe it's a small plane. At that point, we thought it was a small plane that was off course. That has gone into the World Trade Center. Start talking. That was that was it. So you got a vamp, right? Because we have no idea what's going on. And it's impossible to reach anybody in the moment and the, the, the chaos and the frenzy that. that so developed. you didn't. You didn't have teleprompter or anything. You just had oh, to start no. talking about the, these was, images. Yep, Ooh, and that was. I bet that, that was, that was hard. That was me. That was it for the next eight hours because I was on the air for almost eight hours straight. So, um, so I start to talk, and I'm saying, you know, we're in, we're, we're we're interrupting our our you know our regular news now to to take you to this scene um, downtown at the World Trade Center. We something has has crashed into I forget which tower was first. I think it was the North Building. Yeah, it was the and building. and. Um, and so then, you know, I'm, I'm talking and of course, our the crews, we've got now we've got reporters racing down to the scene, but nobody's there yet. Um, and so they said, we've got we've got an eyewitness, a janitor on West 12th Street. And his name was Anthony. So Anthony. So we get we plug Anthony in and I say, Anthony, tell me what you saw. And he says, um, he said, I'm taking out the garbage and I hear this sound and I look up in the sky and I see this big plane. He said it was blue and silver. And I see it. 
And I swear it revved up its engine. And then it just smashed into that building. And he goes, you got to pray for them because everybody's dead. These are the first words that come out of his mouth, which actually was the truth. However, at that moment, we didn't know it. And I have nowhere else to go at this point. So I say, Anthony, I need you to not speculate. And I, I know you're obviously upset at what you saw. But so let's clarify. We thought it might be a small plane. You're saying it was a big plane. He goes, oh, it was one of those big jet liners. Oh, yeah. And it came down. It was really so low. And he goes, I could just hear it. And I said, and then you're telling me that it revved up its engine. And you feel like it was deliberately going into the into the building. He goes, oh, that sound. And, he, you know, he describes the sound and stuff. But then he gets back to the, you got to pray for him because everybody's dead. How could anybody live through that? And. You know, and so I just and I and I finally you know, finally got him off, and we went to some other people. But in that moment, in that moment, I realized this probably was an act of terrorism. Now I cannot say that because if it, I mean, I I can't start that kind of a, of a wild rumor on live television. Right. Everybody is watching me, and I'm the only person that's on the air at NBC at that point, and um, talking about this. And I so anyway. Um, so the morning progresses and we get more and more and more information at one point. Uh, so, you know, so fast forward about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes later when the second plane hits. And now we've got our weathercaster, Janice Huff, who was over in New Jersey. And she says, she says, hold on, you guys. I swear there's another plane that's circling around and coming in to hit. And I, and it looked like on the screen from what we can see, it looked like a tiny, it almost looked like a bug. And sure enough, boom, it hits. And we're just all sitting there going, oh, I mean, by that point, you know, right. a male caster has joined me. We've got Janice who's looking at it from this different vantage point. So, you know, now we're like, oh boy, what's going on? And so now, and, and by the way, we all thought at that moment that Mayor Giuliani might be dead because he was supposed to, he'd gone down to the leadership uh, area that they had a command center that they had down in the World Trade Center. We couldn't get a hold of the fire commissioner. We didn't know what was going on. It was really, really, really frightening. Now, I had a daughter who was 11 years old at the time, and she's in school in Manhattan. My husband was working downtown, and I didn't hear from him. And I knew he was having meetings very close to the World Trade Center. Um, so in between time, you know, I'm trying to find out is my kid okay? Are they taking care of her? I know I'm not going to see her for a while. Tell her to occasionally turn on the TV so she can hear my voice and know I'm alive and well. Um, you know, there was a message from my husband, but I knew my job in that moment with all the chaos and all the frenzy and all this information and misinformation and, and all this stuff that was going around and around and around. I knew my job was to help people get home safely and find out what they can to keep themselves in a good place because there's nothing else for me to do. I mean, people were scared. We had no idea what was coming next. At one point they came into our, 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 our management came into the uh, studio, which was on the sixth floor um, at 30 rock came into the studio and said, uh, we, we've been told this is before we knew all the planes were grounded. We think there are planes headed towards us. Um, because we're such an iconic building. Anybody wants to leave, leave. And I said to myself, you know, and also makes me want to cry when I think about this. We're on the sixth floor. It's going to take a heck of a lot for them to hit us. They're going to hit, you know, because the building's, you know, 56 stories tall. Um, so it's going to take a lot for them to, you know, I'm okay here. I can get out. 
I'm staying. People, some people left, but I just stayed. Um, so, um, you know, it was just, it was just really just one of those days that you will never forget. But I knew, I knew that my composure was super important. There was another point during that day when we're using our camera from the World Trade Center. I mean, from the Empire State Building, and they focused it in very closely on the World Trade Center. And I said to my producer, you know, I told him to cut my mic. And I said to her, you got to take our picture. You got to pull out. And she goes, why? And I said, those are people that are throwing themselves out the window. We cannot show that on live television. And so they, you know, they pulled back then. But it was, it was just one of those things where you're going, what the hell is going on here? Mm-hmm. I knew, I knew that if I let my emotions show, it would not be good for the people that we're trying to help. Yeah, that's an that's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing it. And I, I remember, I actually, I did, I remember watching it because I told you I was I was in basic training at the time. I remember watching, and I remember that footage of pulling back from the tower, and I never knew why now I, you know it's good to know why now i guess but yeah I, I totally remember all that and thank you for the work you did because that was that's you're absolutely right and i can only imagine how hard it must have been to keep your cool and composure through all of that just craziness going on well you know we we lived we lived there people that were on the air we lived there we had i have friends who died in you know in 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 in, at 9-11 that were in that building um I I mean and the stories and then they they started to call me and to say can you so when I got off the air I began calling hospitals to see if friends were in that might be in those hospitals and but one of the saddest sites was then St. Vincent's Hospital which was on the lower west side um all the doctors and the nurses, they're all waiting outside for people to be to be brought there. And no one was being brought there because they either got out or they were dead. I mean, there were very few people that were ended up being truly injured in it, if you remember mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Um, so it was just um, and so my my husband and daughter brought me. I, I obviously the schools got closed down, so they they came to NBC and I was, they, they got me a hotel room to stay close to the thing, to stay close to the studio so I could get back and start reporting again. And um, so when they brought me some fresh clothing and, and stuff, and then they headed out of town because everybody got out if they could. And as we're, as we're, they're handing me these the suitcase, these, we had fighter jets that came overhead that were protecting the skies of New York and they came over right then. And I remember I just dove I just dove for the street because I thought, oh my God, what's this? So it was a really frightening day. Yeah, it was an incredible story, Jane. And I, I know from that, your career uh, went even further and you've got to talk to presidents all the way down to prisoners. What What is the single most iconic interview you've ever done in your career? I don't know that I have one, but I will tell you one that sticks with me that that I'll never forget. Um, um, and that was um, 
Um, that was with a, a, a guy who just won the Nobel Peace Prize, Desmond Tutu. Um, so Desmond Tutu was a South African apartheid leader, anti-apartheid leader. And uh, I'm interviewing him in St. Luke's Park in Lower Manhattan. And we're just, and he was there to give a speech to the UN. And they stopped the interview. And I say, oh, come on, I'm almost done. You know, journalists can be kind of like time conscious, like, oh, please. And and they stopped the interview and they said, no, you you want to, we want you want to do this. And so they told him then that he just won the Nobel Peace Prize. And so he sits back down and tears are coming down his face. And then I start to cry because <laughs> I just learned this. And here's this man who had devoted his life for the people of South Africa. And, and you know, he's like, this isn't about me. This is about, you know, everybody that, that, that everybody that we've worked so hard with and blah, 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 blah. And it was just one of those moments that I'll never forget because I was in the presence of a hero. And I know wow. you've met many heroes in your military oh, yeah. career, but I was in the presence of a, of a, of a leader who was a hero. And so, well, how did that, how did that experience shape what, so, I mean, I know up to that point you had experienced a lot of great leaders, good leaders, but how how did that experience like so this is this is an absolute great like there's no questions like he's a great leader like how did that shape what your view on leadership is today um i think it was looking at the humbleness that he had and i also think it was um recognizing how perseverance and staying true to what you are trying to do, staying true to your purpose and your intent and not giving up what that means. Love it. Oh, you hit me right in the feels. Purpose, people, purpose. You have to know your purpose. You have to live your purpose. You have to follow your purpose. That's the only way you'll ever be happy in your life is you mm -hmm. know exactly what you meant to do with it. And, and just like uh, Mr. Tutu, like, Yes. Oh, I love that so much. So I want to be a little facetious now. As I said in in the beginning, you've won nine Emmys, that which in and of itself is an incredible feat. But is it is there a point to where it's like, oh yeah, got one of these and, and it's not a big deal anymore? Or are you yeah. does everyone yeah. have no? I, I mean I what what it is is that yeah, you love it while it's happening. Um, but you do get to the point where you're going, okay, yeah. Um, and also I know I made a conscious decision to, when I left the world of television, to not go back into it. And I did that because I wanted to try something else and I wanted more control over my life because when you're in a, the, 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 the news business, um, you've always got deadlines something always happens on the Friday before you're supposed to start your vacation. I mean, it's all, you know, it's it, news can happen anytime day or night. And so I just wanted some freedom from that kind of a schedule. Um, so when I left television, I kind of put that behind me and I don't, I mean, I, I I appreciate it and I love it. And it it, it was an, a, a giant part of my life, but I moved on. 
And now I get really excited when I coach somebody to the place where they where they are so much better about telling their story or where they've got an aha moment about believing in themselves or about when I help them achieve purpose, their purpose. That really gets me excited and turns me on. Um, I love just being in that place where I know that I can make a change for somebody. And that becomes, it's, it's significant to me. I mean, you know, we, I think we all ponder this question, what are we put on earth for? I don't know the answer to that, but I know that for me, I love the television part where I can bring great stories to people, inform them about things, have a lot of fun, watch history being made before my very eyes, that kind of thing. I love that. But I also know that I love being able to give individual people, person by person by person, a a different outlook, a different way of looking at life, a different um, an enhancement to what they're doing. And that becomes really important to me. So I can't agree more. Um, and there are a lot of times, you know, I was in the army for a long time, been to Iraq, Afghanistan, been all over the world. I've seen a lot of great things. I've seen a lot of beautiful things. I've seen a massive amount of horrible things. And I began to question, you know, why, you know, why, just why am I going through this? What, what's, this is all pointless. But mm -hmm. now here I sit today and just like you, you know, I use all my experience that I, I've had over the years to influence people and to help them on their journeys. And I, I'm 100% right there with you. Like my day is made when I see that aha light in their eyes and they finally get it or they finally understand something about themselves or they understand something about someone else or whatever the case is. Mm -hmm. And you're like, yeah, I, I got to help facilitate that journey. And that is probably one of the most rewarding things I've ever done in my life. Yep. I couldn't agree more. And it's just, it's very precious. It's just super precious when I get a, when I get a note back from somebody or they, they call me or, or something and they'll say, I killed it today when I, you know had this conversation and and it worked what we did what you helped me do worked or it just you just feel so blessed yeah. to good word to do that good word yeah absolutely and, and that's what you know that's pretty much your full-time gig now mm -hmm. is coaching in, on the art of effective communication mm -hmm. um Obviously, your journalism career has taught you how to be an expert in, in communication. Um, what, what, what is the, can you give, I don't want you to give away the form. Obviously, if you're looking for a communications coach, there's no one better. Um, so I, I don't want to, you know, I want people to come to you, but what, what is a good uh, key to, to the art of communication you can give people today? Uh, on how to communicate effectively? I think there's um, probably three things. The first one is to be a great talker, you have to be a great listener. So too many people don't really truly listen. They're so busy trying to think of what am I going to say next or how am I going to make a great impression or whatever it is. And you're not really listening to what the other person is telling you and hearing what they need. 
Maybe you jump to a solution before you even know what the problem is. So I would say, listen well. I talked earlier about that respect thing. I think anytime you want to communicate, especially when it's difficult or tough, you have to come at it with that eye of, of having respect for somebody as a human being. Even if you're having, even if you disagree with them completely, you will get so much further if you show respect. And I just, I, that that's key and core to everything I do. Um, and then uh, if you think about how are you making people feel? Because you know, there's this great Maya Angela quote that I love, which is people will forget what you said, they'll forget what you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel. Mm-hmm. And every part of communication is about feeling. How are you making people feel? So be super conscious of that. It's it's interesting because we sometimes don't realize how our tone of voice, how we use our body language, our eye contact, our expressions, all of that, the, our posture, whether our arms are folded like this, which means you've got a barrier to it between you and them, which means you're not interested. All of that sends off signals that we may not even know we're giving. So be conscious of it, study it a little bit. One of the key things that people can do is record yourself. Just record yourself. And everybody's got a phone. Just turn on the video, take a video of yourself and take a look at it and say, wow, I had no idea I squinched my nose up like that or that I had these weird things I was doing with my body or that my voice sounded so like not... (laughs) friendly. You'll be shocked. And then just work on the little things that you see that you don't like. It'll, it can, it'll make enormous changes for you. I, I just want to point out, I don't know if it's like your years of experience as a broadcast journalist or whatever, but you keep getting ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> like like you, you're transitioning into the, my next questions ahead of me. And it's like, Man, come on. <laughs> Let me ask Give me a question. chance here. <laughs> yeah. I know I'm a rookie, but come on. No, I'm kidding. Um, I, I actually wanted to talk about body language a little bit because body language is so important. And we go back to when you were covering 9-11 or any, anything else that was hard for you to cover. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you were talking about how your composure on the broadcast during 9-11, it was so important because... Um, you know, if you start displaying fear, then the people are watching are going to feel that fear. And your body language is 100% a part of that. You know, mm-hmm. you show fear in, mm-hmm. in the way you hold yourself. So you have to be in complete control uh, of all that, uh, you know, 100% of the time. Are there any key, like, easy to fix dead giveaways when it comes to body language that people should avoid? Uh, Well, I just mentioned crossing the arms, which is considered to be a barrier. Um, When you don't, don't slump, especially when you're walking, don't, um, because bad posture indicates that you're not very disciplined, that you probably Mm -hmm. don't really care about the impression you're making. Think about this, that within two tenths of a second, when you enter a room or enter someone's presence, they're making a judgment about you. You're giving them an impression. That's how much time you have. That's not a lot. So think wow. about how you're think about how you're walking. How are you gesturing? Are your gestures 
familiar and friendly? Are they at, are they adding to what you're saying or are they giving people signals that you're all confused and messed up? So think about what you're, what you're doing with your hands. Eye contact is crucial because mm -hmm. eyes are the gateway to the soul. And then uh, think about how you're using your voice. Many of us do not use our voice to even one tenth of its capability because we can talk very, 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 very fast. We can talk really high. We can talk really low. We can talk um, with menace and meanness, or we can talk with kind of a confidence that exudes making people be comforted. Um, we can talk with a friendly voice. So think about what you're doing with all of that and make it work so that it's your authentic self. I don't want you to be phony, but I also want you to think about the impression that it's giving because those, those are the tricks and tips. They really are. Um, so just be mindful, be mindful of what you're doing with your body and how you might be turning people off without even understanding that you are. Yeah. I love that. And you're absolutely right. Like I never heard anyone put a number or a, a time to it, but two tenths of a second, we're literally that that's faster than you can blink. Right. Like, and, and their decision on whether they like you or not has already been made. Yeah. And, and of course you can overcome that initial. And what I think is crazy though, Jane, is people don't even realize that they've made mm -hmm. that assumption or decision, whatever, like it, it, it just happens instantly and we don't even realize it. It's innate. Body language is innate. We didn't have a spoken language for 160,000 years. I mean, until 160,000 years ago. So all those millions of years we walked on earth, we did it simply with our, you know, our body language. Yeah. It's incredible. And that, that kind of leads to my next question then, uh, you know, again, leadership is such a crucial part in, in your life and what you've done. How has empathy played? Uh into uh, your career as a journalist, your career as a leader, and then, of course, what you do now? Empathy is everything. It just is everything. If you don't have empathy, I, I don't know how you can be a human being. But in order to be a journalist that's going to get the real story, you have to think about having empathy for whomever you're talking to. Even if it's a very, very tough interview with someone who is on uh, death row. Yeah. 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 But you're not going to get a great interview if you're confrontational and don't have empathy. And if you can't have empathy for what somebody else is going through, then how do you even exist? I don't know. I really don't know. Um, but empathy, leaders, great leaders have empathy. And instead of starting a meeting with, here's what we're going to do now, it's, how are you all doing today? Mm -hmm. Talk to me about where we are. Then you get to the tough stuff. But you do the tough stuff with empathy, always. 100%. I agree 100%. And one of the, one of the key challenges I've faced, and I don't know, because we, you know, we grew up in two completely different worlds. Um it's hard to have empathy in the military sometimes. Um, sure. and, and what I had to learn is there's a time when I have to shut my empathy off when it's just, okay, I was empathetic. Now it's time for business. Like, you know, empathy's not working or whatever the case may be. Um, mm -hmm. 
did you experience that same thing? And how do you know when, if you did, how did you know when it was time to, okay, so I'm interviewing this person, the empathy route isn't really connecting. So now I'm going to come maybe with a more forceful line of questioning or whatever the case, uh, did you ever experience that? And how did you know when it was time to switch? Of course I've experienced it. Um, how did I know when it was time to switch it up when they weren't answering the questions? when they were elusive or simply switching the subject or not. I mean, this happens a lot with politicians, for example. <laughs> and so that's when you just say, look, this is a legitimate, tough question and you need to answer it. Why did you do what you did? Or why did you vote that way? Or what is behind this thinking that makes no sense to me and you so you that that's it's it's there is a point when in order to get to the truth you've got to be tough you you can still can you still be tough and empathetic at the same time i think so but but i do agree with you and sometimes you have to turn that switch off um especially when somebody is doing something that's wrong and you know it's wrong and it's it's morally or ethically or just physically wrong mm -hmm. and that's when you have to say look you got to stop this and you have to stop this right now right 100% and agree with you you can believe that there's you know that there's a obviously there's a reason why they're acting like they are but you can't i mean if you think about even if you think about things like hostage negotiators right um and how they work, they use a lot of empathy to get somebody to put down a gun or to get mm -hmm. somebody to let a hostage go, right? Yeah, and usually 100%. It's the empathy part that ends up working. Yeah. And, uh, and I think back, you know, just to my wife, you know, a lot of times whenever it's like we're, we're discussing or whatever, if I come with the military and I can't tell you how many times I've heard, I'm not a soldier, shut up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you laugh, but sadly it's true. But when I come with that hard approach, it has zero effect. And in fact, a lot of times it has the reverse effect of what I want. But I've, but when I come with empathy and as you said, respect, then you know that makes the conversation so much easier so much more pleasant and a lot of times it's like especially in the professional world conversations i'm like oh this is gonna suck <laughs> and then it's like you get done with it because you took that approach of empathy and respect and honor integrity like you you get all those core values into the conversation and then all of a sudden it's like you leave it and you're like oh that was actually a pretty productive and pleasant yeah. conversation yeah, yeah. and yeah. Uh, usually you know a lot of times you'll hear things like huh i didn't realize you felt that way <laughs> yeah right well and, that's part of communication too is that we we sometimes are afraid to talk about our true feelings and and you know the truth always wins mm -hmm. yeah so uh, one of your key things is the power of presentation and how people present themselves. We've already talked a little bit about that. Um, give me one key tip for 
someone that's going to be in front of a camera, in front of a boardroom, on a stage, or just going out into the world to present themselves in a powerful, confident manner that would encourage people to want to listen and follow. Remember that at that moment in time, you are the expert on whatever subject you're speaking of. Because we get caught up in our own head about, oh, look who's here in the audience. Oh, how many people are watching? Oh, I don't know. There's a camera on. What about that? But you need to have faith and confidence that you know what you're talking about. And anybody who's watching or listening or seeing you in that moment doesn't know as much about that subject at that time in that place, or you wouldn't be there talking about it. So just have confidence in yourself and then breathe. <laughs> it's really simple. Breathe. <laughs> I'm not kidding. The first time I spoke public, like public speaking, something I love and I, I've done it for you or I did it for years in the army. It was part of what I did. And I absolutely loved it, but I'll never forget the first time I got in front of people to talk. I was so nervous. I'm pretty sure I, I broke like any rap record on how fast you can say words. I'm pretty sure <laughs> I broke it and I didn't take a single breath. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, they said they could see my, the color in my face like changing as I was running out of oxygen. And so, yeah, <laughs> breathe. It's important. Breathe. Just <laughs> breathe but and then it's funny jane because when i started podcasting right like i'm a big take action person i i didn't research podcasting at all i just started doing it because i knew if i started researching it i would get stuck in analysis paralysis wouldn't go forward with actually doing it because it scared me and so i'll never like talking to a camera and a microphone is completely different than talking on a stage in front of people i thought it, it was going to be the same and it wasn't the same experience at all. So now I had to relearn this skill that I thought I already had. And again, I was like, breathe, Stephen. It's okay. Let there be an awkward pause. It's not Absolutely. live radio. It's fine. Absolutely. Right? Like, let the guests think. Pauses are the single most underutilized tool we have. When you take a pause, which is only the time it takes to tap your foot, that pause allows what you're saying to sink in. Mm -hmm. And it allows, um, and people, you know, people, you can't, you re-engage them. And you also sound smarter when you take a pause than if you use a crutch word. Really? Yep. I never thought about that. You're right. But totally. And that, that, that's one of the things I had to learn is one of my words is so. I don't say, uh, I mean, I do every once in a while, but so before every sentence. So, so I want to move on. And I've probably said it a few <laughs> times today. But I, I've learned that if I just pause for a second, take a breath, that so goes away. Exactly. And I'm able to start my conversation the way I want. And exactly. it, the other thing I learned, though, I'm glad I, I did that or, you know, in some cases still do, because I would spend hours editing out all the so's on my podcast. Really? And I, oh. I did. That, that now that's silly and i had but that was it, it is now yes you're absolutely right but that was a great learning experience to just be me and just do what i do and if i'm trying to connect with my uh people 
um, then they're going to connect with me anyway. So there you go. So <laughs> um, I just had to okay get over not to be perfect. Absolutely. That was the hardest lesson I had to learn doing this is it's okay if it's messy. Uh, people, <laughs> people will connect with that. Um, I want to finish with just one simple question. That's probably the most profound thing uh, I've asked you today. And that is, what do you hope your legacy is? Um, I hope my legacy is that I brought some purpose and joy into people's lives. Perfect. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think, I don't think you can, a uh, joy. I think that's, that's the key is just bring joy, bring happiness mm -hmm. in a dark world. It's, it's, it's great to be a light of happiness in people's lives. I love that. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I want, I would like you to uh, let people know how they can get a hold of you, get a hold of your coaching, get a hold of your speaking, uh, all the great uh, work you do. How can people find out about it? Um, it's, uh, so my email, I have a website, which is janehanson.com, H-A-N-S-O-N. And my email, which you can email is jane at janehanson.com. It's like really simple. <laughs> that is simple. I had uh, to make it simple or I forget it. <laughs> uh, and of course, everybody, you know the deal. All her links to her socials, her website, email, all that stuff are going to be down below in the show notes. So make sure you scroll down and give her tons and tons of love. And of course, once you're done doing that, go to renownedleadership.com. Come give me tons and tons of love because <laughs> I need it. Um, <laughs> So um, I want to finish, Jane. I finish every single podcast with uh, this this exact same question that I don't warn you guys about. And some people get mad, but I don't care. My question is, what is your single best piece of advice for how someone could lead like a champion? I would say that it is to not take yourself too seriously to believe that you're bringing something to the table but also to understand you have to earn it i think you need to earn the right to be a good leader by working your way into it you make you're going to make mistakes good leaders make mistakes but they're not afraid to admit it and they learn from those mistakes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's the best. I, that's one of the best ones I've had. I've never had someone say, uh, you know, you, you got to earn that leadership, right? Like, and you're absolutely right. You totally do. That That is amazing advice, Jane. Jane, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been an honor and a privilege to interview someone so iconic as, to my life anyway. Um, this has been the highlight of my year. Um, thank you so, so much for joining us. And I truly, truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. I've had a blast. Super yes. fun. <laughs> All right, everybody. That's going to wrap it up for this week's episode of the Renowned Leadership Podcast. Like I said, go make sure you give Jane tons and tons of love. Um, she definitely deserves it after all the hard work she's put in and all these years of her expertise. So make sure you do that. I will see you all next week at the same bad time, same bad channel. 
And in the meantime, never forget, lead like a champion. Goodbye, everybody. No one does it